comes. Thank you, Jono Becker. Good evening. How are you doing? Let's say thank you to our musos. You guys did an awesome. You gals did an awesome job. Thank you. We appreciate you. All right. Sit down and tell the person next to you that you're glad they're wearing their old spice. It's going to get some stuff sorted out here. Now, I've had a busy day today and I made a mistake. You know those days where you don't charge your devices during the day and then you get to things and you realize you have to use them at night time. So then you've got two on 20% instead of one on 100%. So I've got plan A and plan B here. And hopefully I'll only need plan A. So I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, a geek if I have to turn to my laptop, but I'll try to go from my phone and uh, the Bible as well. That'd be cool. How you doing? Doing okay? Excellent. Let's get straight into God's Word. I'm excited about next year already. Over the last month, I've been praying every week and I take uh, Thursdays and I don't talk to anyone on Thursdays. I don't turn up to the office on Thursdays. I don't take phone calls on Thursdays unless they're super urgent. And mostly what I do is I pray for you and I pray for our church. And I pray over every aspect of the life of our church. I saturate it in prayer. And then I plan and I plan, 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 plan in response to prayer, 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 prayer. You heard it said, Uh, by the famous preacher, that if I was given three hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first two hours sharpening the axe. And prayer is when we sharpen the axe that God has given us in our lives to be able to do. And how many people know we're just more effective when we pray than if we just wrestle? And too often, prayer is the last resort that we have. And uh, we exhaust all the other avenues, and then we begin to cry out to God in desperation, don't we? But uh, it's a good habit and a good Christian life-giving discipline to make prayer your first resort. (laughs) And I found that, that the more I pray about things before I go off doing or I go off deciding, the better stuff works. Now, that makes me a nightmare to work with any of our staff, I'll tell you, because they ask me questions all the time, and I say, oh, I'm just going to have to pray about that and get back to you. But they're like, but Pastor Ben, I want an answer right now. Not my problem. I ain't giving you an answer till I've got an answer I'm willing to uh, com- commit to. And, and so it makes a, a bit of a nightmare. But what I found is that oftentimes the decision-making process goes a lot better. And it's always been my habit. Even when I was in business, when I, was, when I wasn't working for the church, but I was Christian by then, and I'd always do HR decisions. Everything was done with a sense of the leading of the Spirit. And uh, it's amazing that what God does, if, you know, when we manage our lives better, when we talk to God. So anyway, my my prayer over the last month on Thursdays particularly, but a lot of other times as well, has been, God, where are you taking our church and what are you saying to us? And one of the things that uh, God's helped me to sort of map out is all of our preaching series for next year and uh, what God's talking to our church about. And it's amazing, sometimes as a pastor, you feel like, you feel like a mum, you know, doing a family meal plan on our fridge at home. We have a chalkboard, and on the chalkboard is all you know. There's Mexican, there's pizza, there's pasta bake. And those are the things Danielle likes to cook. And then there's salads and you know healthy stuff. That's what I like to cook. <laughs> That's a joke. It's a joke. But uh, but you map it out because you you're sensitive. What does the family need? And uh, so. I've been thinking and praying a lot about what our family needs and I feel God speak to me and I just couldn't help leaving some stuff till next year. I wanted to spend our last Friday night service night just talking about a little bit of stuff that we're going to talk a lot about next year. Is that okay? And you could call it a shortcut or you could call it a preview or you could just call it that uh, there's so much good stuff that God wants to do in our community over the next 12 months that um, I just wanted to share some of it with you from God's word tonight. 
So what we're going to talk about is not going to be the best, most crafted sermon that you've ever heard. What we're going to talk about is not going to be the the sermon that sort of encapsulates the church vision or our action statements or our action plans and sets our goals and all that sort of stuff. But I just think we need to uh, sit in God's Word together. Who thinks that's a great idea? And just sit in it. And sometimes you don't know why you need to sit in God's Word. You just know that you need to sit in God's Word. And I've always found from especially becoming a Bible person and and, and reading God's Word, I've always found you always do yourself a favour when you sit in God's Word. I was talking to somebody today, and uh, husband and wife, they came to see me, they're experiencing some difficulties, and we were sitting there, and uh, I I just let them talk so I could find out kind of what was going on, because, you know, sometimes people come to see you, I'm sure you have this happen to you, or you do it yourself like I do too, Um, you, 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 people can come and see you, and they'll sit down in your office, and they're a bit nervous, so when they decide, oh, I need to talk to someone, and they'll talk to you, but they're a bit nervous, so they'll spend 15 minutes getting to the point of why they wanted to talk to you. So you've just kind of got to let them, you know, it's like when you're fishing, you let the fish run with enough line before you start winding things back in. And they began to talk about all these things that are falling apart in their life. And all I didn't give them any advice, I didn't, didn't give them any help, really, I actually wasn't helpful at all. All I did is ask them some questions, and the first question was this, what's, what's the Lord saying to you at the moment? And they stopped. And first of all, they thought that was a really weird question to be asked, considering they came to get advice about a situation they were facing. And I said, look, I could give you all types of advice. I could give you all sorts of, you know, life experience. I could tell you about the other 10 situations I've seen in the last few months, and maybe we could learn from that, or one from three years ago, and maybe we could learn from that. And, and we can learn from experience. But, you know, one of the most important questions all the time in life is, what is God saying? What does God's word say? How is God's spirit taking his word and sowing it into your life right now to speak into that situation? And do you know what I found? You can have wonderful, great Christian people, but their life is absent the process of letting God's word speak into their life. Often, and I'm not saying this to criticize them or to judge them, but we began to have a conversation and both of them began to weep and both of them began to tear up as they realized, you know, in all of this stress and in all of this wrestling and in all of this stuff that we've been experiencing, we didn't realize until just then, we haven't even stopped and asked ourselves what God's saying. We haven't even stopped and said, hang on, what does God's word say about this situation? Now that's opening God's word and asking in concrete, in black and white or red text, what does God's word say? And that's so important for us, isn't it? It's so important. We, we left to our own devices, we'll do things according to the wisdom of this world that has raised us our whole lives, hasn't it? Even if you're a strong believer, the truth is most of us have spent more time being discipled by the world than we've spent in the kingdom. And so we have to relearn the patterns that we have. And God's word comes to us not as a product of this world, but as something out of this world that is full of wisdom and advice. And it's revelation, points us to God, speaks to us. And then more importantly than that, like we were just studying the dry words in a book, God's spirit takes the words from this book and, it may, and he makes it living to us. So it becomes an energizing software that we can download. We can download God's software. And it's so important. It's so important for us to sit in God's word. We know that, of course, because God's word opens with a story about what happens when God speaks his word. And that's called the creation of the universe. There'd never been such a thing as light before until God said, let there be. And then light was. In the Hebrew, it says, God said, light be, and light was. It's not very grammatically correct to talk like that in English, but in the Hebrew, it's fascinating. Light be, and light was. 
what God said happened, happened. And we've got to learn to let ourselves be that chaotic world under formation that when God's word is spoken over us, the Holy Spirit hovering over the watery deep like in Genesis 1 comes and takes God's word that is spoken and makes it a reality into our lives. So the Christian habit is to read God's word, pray God's word, meditate on God's word, listen to God's word, listen to preaching, listen to reading. Now you can get audio files and podcasts and it's all good. And take it and listen to it. And as you listen to it, listen receptively saying, God, I'm a world under formation. You are, you know. Turn the person next to you and say, I'm a world under formation. And turn the person next to you and say, me too, and I've got quite a lot of formation to go. You do. Uh, Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new, a new creation. What's creation? Where do you find creation? You find it in Genesis chapter 1. And Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new one of them. An old, dark, chaotic, watery, murky world where there was no life. But now God's Spirit is hovering over you and he is speaking his word and he's speaking his life and his order and his flourishing word into your life and God's Holy Spirit is making it happen. And so into the darkness of your life, God says, light be, and the Holy Spirit creates light. And we can now look back on our lives and say, when God called me in the gospel, my life was illumined. His light came into my life. How many people remember the feeling of, of, of being saved in those new, if you remember it, in those new Christian days where it just seemed like new lights had been turned on, didn't it? Because that's exactly what did happen. Lights were turned on where there wasn't any light before. And that's why we sit under God's Word. So tonight we're just going to sit under a couple of bits of God's Word. The title of this message is imaginatively called New Exodus. New Exodus. The Exodus period is a book, the second book of the Bible, that chronicles the journey of the people of Israel under Moses and Joshua's leadership out of Egypt and into the beginning of inheriting the promised land. Now, of course, they made a ton of mistakes along the way, and you can read the story. It's got highs and lows and tragedies and all sorts of stuff. But, but the Exodus is the story of God forming a people for himself and God showing the world what salvation is. God first revealed himself to humanity en masse through the actions of the Exodus. When Moses went up in, Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter 3 and he went up the holy mountain and he heard from God and God said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, I am Yahweh, I've heard the suffering of my people and I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. It had been a long time since anybody had heard from God. It had been a long time since anybody knew anything about God. The Hebrew people in slavery in Egypt had virtually all but lost touch with God. And so the first thing, the first concrete revelation of God to humanity for a long time is when God leads the people of Israel out. It shows something about God to us. In fact, in the New Testament, every single term about salvation, every single metaphor about salvation, every single picture of the Christian life comes from the history of the Exodus. Think about words like salvation. Think about words like deliverance. Think about words like freedom from slavery and freedom from fear. Think about things like God's lordship. Think about things like Jesus' name as salvation. Think about things like redemption or forgiveness. All of these, we would have no idea what any of those words mean if we didn't read the book of Exodus first, which reveals God to us and then points us to Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God. 
And it's amazing. Now, I know what you're saying at this point. A lot of people say, but hang on, but hang on. But what about like Abraham and what about Isaac and Jacob and what about, you know, Joseph and what about Genesis chapter 1? That's before the Exodus. But for thousands of years, Jewish people understood this thing, that there was no book of Genesis until Moses went up the mountain and had a revelation from God. And the tradition about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all came together in one book written by Moses and then maintained by Moses' disciples. That's why they're called the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so what we're saying is this, that none of that stuff was written down until Moses put pen to paper and Moses didn't put pen to paper until sometime after God had initiated the process of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. So even the creation story, even the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, even all of these stories, they are written from the perspective of somebody currently experiencing the exodus and being led out of Egypt into the promised land by the hand of God. Which means everything you read when you read the book of Genesis, you see exodus signposts all the time. Who loves a good movie? How many people love Star Wars? You can admit it in church, we won't judge you too much. Just taking names, good. So in Star Wars, if you watch the Star Wars movies and any type of movie that has consecutive versions, you find these things in the movies that are known to the fans as Easter eggs. Who, how many people are familiar with the idea of an Easter egg in a movie? Not an actual chocolate egg wrapped in foil, but an Easter egg is this. A secret in chapter one of the movie that you won't realise was there until you see chapter five of the movie, right? Star Wars has got like eight movies and, you know, the Marvel movies have like 127 movies and TV shows and all this sort of stuff. And the real geeks, I have a 14-year-old daughter and she is a self-confessed geek. She said to me the other day, Dad, I'm a nerd. I said, you're not a nerd, you're a geeky, dorking nerd. That's how geeky she is. And she is a super fan of all this sort of stuff. And she can tell you every Easter egg in every moment of every Marvel movie. And an Easter egg goes like this. Something happens in chapter one and you don't even notice it. It might be a person's name or a story of something that's happened. And you don't even notice it because you've never seen it before. So you're just taking it all in. But when you watch, there's the first movie, then there's the sequel, then there's the sequel with a prequel and then a sub-sequel. And then, you know, it's just weird, these Hollywood movies. But then right here in the fifth edition of that movie series, the secret that was revealed to you in chapter one finally makes sense. And you never knew until you saw that movie. How many people think just people got too many time on their hands? Uh-huh, I'm feeling you here. Star Wars is like that. Lord of the Rings is like that. Um, you know, the, the Marvel movies are like that. Any action, especially anything written for today's young people, it's like that. They reveal something at the start that makes sense later on. And when you read Genesis, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense until later on. Until later on when the Exodus starts, but until later on when Jesus comes along as well. And the whole Old Testament is like that, signposts pointing forward. So all that is to say simply this, the book of Exodus is the number one training tool to help a person learn what does salvation look like. I'm going to say it again. The book of Exodus is the number one Christian training tool to help a person learn what does salvation look like. And salvation looks interesting. Salvation looks so interesting in the book of Exodus that the book of Exodus will define salvation for the entire rest of the Bible. I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3 if you've got a Bible with you. If you don't, you can go on your iPad with your eyelids, your iPhone. And we'll talk about the great I am. 
In Genesis, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, and we'll start from verse 7, Moses has seen the burning bush experience. Here he is out in the wilderness in obscurity. He's fled from Egypt. Now he's married. He's been living about 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years since leaving Egypt, he's forgotten all about his aspirations to be a savior type figure. He's forgotten all about living in Pharaoh's house. He's forgotten all about everything except farming sheep in the wilderness. And one day he's out tending his sheep 40 years later. And he uh, sees a sight that he must turn aside to see. He sees a mountain, and on top of that mountain is a bush that's getting burnt up. It's on fire, but the bush is not consumed by the fire. He sees a tree that is had superimposed over it the presence and the glory of God. And he says, I have got to check this out. Even though the local superstitions at the time were, you shouldn't go at that mountain because God lives up there and if you even touch it, you're going to die. But Moses, for some reason, was drawn to it. He sensed God calling him in the bush later on, the New Testament will tell us. So Moses goes up and in verse 5, God says, don't go any closer. He says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said this, listen, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. How many people felt like that on Friday afternoon at the office? (laughs) Crying out because of your slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Everybody say concerned. Notice God's motivation here. I have seen my people I have heard their cry. I am concerned about their suffering. This is our introduction to God. Never before, listen to this, never before this moment in human history has anyone ever written something down about God. Never before this moment. This moment is the moment that creates the habit of writing down Scripture. Moses presumably at some point comes down the mountain, takes pen to paper and goes, I'll start writing this stuff down. And eventually he, he goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and begins to write. And evangelical scholars and Jewish scholars for centuries all believed all those first five books were written by Moses after this encounter with God on the mountain. In modern times, people have lots of questions. Well, was it really Moses? Could it have been someone else? And the point doesn't matter other than this, that until Moses went up the mountain and God said that stuff to him, it had never occurred to people in the ancient world, we should write stuff down about God. Because they didn't write stuff down about their gods back then, the way that we now have it. It was a shattering, earth-shattering event, something brand new, God revealing himself to someone in such a compelling way that it must be written down. And how does God introduce himself? I have historical lineage. I'm the God of your father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Jewish people would have shared stories that would have been passed down from father to son and mother to daughter, all this history. But here Moses is getting something straight from the source, the glory of God appears to him. And here he is writing it down. And so this passage is the very first written human introduction to who God is. Isn't that amazing? Don't you feel like you're like discovering something like an archaeologist? Here we are, you know, something that's now thousands of years old, and we tonight get to open it up and hear with fresh ears what Moses must have heard because they didn't know what God was like back then until he himself revealed his name and his personality to Moses on the mountain. And his first thing, I'm concerned about their suffering. I'm concerned about them under slavery. I want them to be free. I I, I don't want them to suffer. The, 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 The cries of their mouths have come to my ears and I am doing something about it. 
What's so interesting is at this point, there's no law. At this point, there's no sacrificial system. At this point, there's no worship system. There's only nothing at all, no possible way of relating to God until God says, Moses, come up here. I want to talk to you. God starts it. Everybody say that. God starts it. This is how God shows himself to us. And, 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 and back in Genesis and for the rest of Scripture, it will always be the same thing. God starts it. Ever been on a family road trip with kids and they begin to bicker in the back seat? They begin to becker in the back seat? And, and, and eventually, if you say, stop it, kids, they'll turn around and go, hey, she started it. She started Stop starting things. But God starts stuff in the Scriptures. And here, he started his beginning his revelation is him initiating contact with humans pretty much like it is all the way through the rest of the bible actually i've heard them crying and i'm concerned about their suffering listen to this verse eight so i have come down everybody say come down so i have come down to rescue them everybody say rescue think about this god saying i've heard their cries i'm concerned about their suffering so i have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Listen to this. And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Bad news for these guys, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzavites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Vegemites, and the Marmites. It's the home. These guys are going to lose their home. That's a bit of a shame. However, listen, look at what God says. I've come down to rescue them. This is the God who doesn't ask us to build a tower like the Tower of Babel was and come up to his standards. This is the God who says, who am I? First of all, I'm concerned about suffering. First of all, I'm concerned about freedom. First of all, I'm concerned about slavery. And now I'm concerned to rescue you. So I have come down. That's the God we serve. The God that comes down, every other human attempt is an attempt to go up, isn't it? Religion, that's what religion broadly is. Religion is human attempts to access God, to please God. Let's build a bridge to God. Let's bribe God, witchcraft. Let's manipulate God. Every human attempt in religion is an attempt to get up to God. And the God of the Bible is the God who says, before you've done anything, I'm the God that comes down to rescue you. I'm the God. This is how he's revealed to us. This is ground zero. In the scriptures, there's this thing in biblical interpretation called the law of first mention. The first way somebody's introduced to you is very, very important, and it will set their identity for the rest of the story. And you know that because every Bible story, every Bible character has an introductory story, and the rest of their life will follow the trajectory set by their introductory story, won't it? Jesus, born and pursued by King Herod, then pursued by the Romans, and pursued. see what happens? His, his birth story really tells his whole life story. And here again in the law of first mention, God's initial narrative, who he introduces himself to in Moses. And then what does he say? I've come to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and then listen to this, and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. Everybody say Spacious. I want you just to think about this word spacious, spacious. It's kind of a spacious kind of word, isn't it? I, I, I did a mission trip one time and uh, ever seen a Daihatsu charade? It's a tiny hatchback car. It's supposed to seat five people, two in the front, three in the back, but the only type of three people that will fit in the back is if they are all seven-year-old children. Well, I got picked up at the airport. I'd sent the money ahead to these guys, say, hey, we're driving through the Himalayas. We need a big vehicle because, well, I don't want to 
get killed. And so we need a big four-wheel drive. Yeah, yeah, no problem, we'll get a four-wheel drive. And so uh, I turn up at the airport, and even though I'd sent them the expensive Dolaros for a four-wheel drive, they picked me up in a Daihatsu charade. And uh, I have my suitcase, and then the two guys I'm travelling with, they have their suitcase, and, and then the two guys in the front seats, they have their suitcases. So we have five adults and five suitcases in a tiny Daihatsu charade. Man, I tell you, you could hear that thing screeching and creaking as it drove along these Himalayan roads. At some points, we literally had to get out and push because the gradient of the road was so steep. The car didn't have the power to drive up this road. It was so annoying. And I remember that we finally got to this little town and I said to the guys, I'm going to go crazy in this tiny little car. This guy is pressed up right against me. Who, who, who hates the feeling of claustrophobia, being stuck in somewhere, crammed into something? It's like travelling you know, in Qantas, in, uh, you know, economy seating, you're all like, you know, I need to have a black belt in yoga to fit in the seat or something like this, and my feet up around my head. Being squeezed in. Who hates being squeezed? Who, who, who's ever had one of those things like, you know, you, you're asleep and your head goes under the blankets and you have this sudden nightmare that wakes you up of somebody kidnapping you in a sack and smothering you? Any, anyone had that? Just, just me? I'll deal with that later with my therapist. It's okay. Often when, I was, when, I, when my kids were little and I'd tickle them and, I, and I'd wrestle them and, and they'd say, Dad, get out of my face, because they'd feel like they were getting smothered. And, and, and think about being smothered. Think about being pressed in. Think about being stuck in a tiny little car. Well, I said to these guys, I'm stuck in this tiny little car. It's like 42 degree heat. We're all sweaty. We're all stinky. Everyone's stinky. Then we've all got the windows down because there was no air conditioning. Whole nother story. And then every time a truck went past, the, the, the truck exhaust don't point up in the air. They point down to the side so every time the truck goes past you get all this black diesel smoke blowing all through the car and (laughs) and I said the guys I'm going to go nuts so can we just like trade this car in and get another car so we found a rental place somewhere up in on in the Himalayas on the left hand side of the road was Nepal on the right hand side of the road was India and in that town we found a four-wheel drive that we could hire at exorbitant prices (laughs) so we rented this car and then we kept driving and I just remember the rest of that drive Stretching out on the seat. It was so good having leg room. It was so good being able to stretch out and, you know, no more cramping, no more like cramps in my spine and my ribs feeling like they're going to snap. And every time we went over a bump, someone falling on my lap, none of that, just spacious. And the aircon was working and we were just like breathing freely and enjoying the rest of that drive. And and then suddenly, because we were up in the Himalayas, so we're looking down at these brilliant scenes of huge panoramic tea gardens and all sorts of stuff. And I suddenly realised, you know what I hadn't noticed until now? What an amazing view this is. Because the whole time I was stressed and cramped and sweaty and grumpy. But suddenly, the pressure was off. I was in a more spacious place. And when I was in a more spacious place, I, I could see things like I'd never seen them before. I could see completely different things. I could, see, you know, I could appreciate other stuff that was going on around me. Isn't that a great picture of what life is? We all find ourselves in, in, in places in life where we just feel squished in and under pressure. Someone sat in my office and they said, I feel, Pastor Ben, like I am beset on every side. Isn't that a poetic way to put it? I'm beset on every side. Everywhere I turn, something is against me. They, you know what they're saying? I feel hemmed in. I'm feeling squeezed. They, this is what they were saying. I'm under pressure. Ever felt under pressure? Well, the, the Bible shows God responding to his people that don't even know his people, they're his people yet, because they are being squeezed and they're under pressure. Think about these Hebrew slaves. 
They, they're simple people. They haven't had access to education, probably can't read and write. They're probably at the bottom of the pecking order. In fact, the word for Hebrew, habaru, really means the poorest people at the bottom of the Egyptian pecking order. They weren't all necessarily bloodline descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these Hebrews. They, they, they were the, the poor and the outcasts, which included the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but included a lot of other people of a lot of other ethnicities that were just slaves. And they had this blanket term, Hebrews. And it's those people, that people group, the Hebrews, that God says, I am concerned about them. They are squeezed. They are under pressure. And I'm going to take them and form them into one people, Abraham's true descendants, and lead them. And what does God want to do? Well, imagine them making bricks without straw and and their kids getting killed and all this sort of stuff. And just imagine these country, uneducated, poor people at the bottom of the pecking order, building massive buildings in the biggest megacity on earth called Egypt. Imagine you, imagine you suddenly if I took you from Alice Springs where it's quite spacious out here and I took you to New York City and said, now you're going to be a slave sweeping the streets for me, making my bricks without straw and suddenly you're in this big towering city, stuff everywhere, can't breathe, claustrophobic. And God comes to those people and he says, I've heard you cry, I've heard you suffering. I've seen you're squeezed and you're under pressure. And look at the picture that God says, "And, and I am going to lead you out of Egypt and bring you into a good land. A spacious land. I am going to give you space. I'm going to bring you out from where you're a slave, out of your confinement, out of your pressure, out of where you're hemmed in, out of where you're a slave, and I'm going to give you space. A spacious land. Well, wouldn't you know it? That sentence, taking you out of slavery and putting you into a spacious land. Everybody say spacious. Say it spaciously. Spacious. It's a good, just think about that word. It's so great what it says. I'm going to take you out of the shoebox of pressure and slavery into a spacious land. I'm going to knock down the walls. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to, you're going to go from urban slum to acreage. That's what God's saying. Well, think about this because for the rest of the Bible, that will be pointed back to as God's deliverance, as God's salvation. He took us, He took us and He led us out of Egypt and He brought us into the promised land. And that process is called salvation, out of slavery, into the promised land, new identity, new name, new identity, new way to relate relate to God, into a land flowing with milk and honey, a good and spacious land. And if you read the Psalms, if you read the Gospels, if you read the epistles of Paul, everything related to salvation points back to the Exodus to say to you, that's what it looks like when God saves somebody. Which bit does it look like? The bit where God started it, before you even did anything, God came and found you and drew you to himself and said, go back, Moses, and sent you a savior to lead you out. Not because you're spiritual, not because you were there going, hey, God, I'll do all the right stuff, please save me. No, you, you, you didn't even know God, but he found you and, and said, I'm going to take you and save you. What does salvation mean? In the Hebrew Bible, for the rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for salvation is this word, yashar, yashar, where the word Joshua comes from, the Lord's deliverer where the name Jesus comes from. You take the Hebrew word Yesha, you make it into a name, it becomes Yeshua, which we say Joshua. means the Lord saves. And then you take that Hebrew name, which God said to Mary and Joseph, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a saviour, so we'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. You'll call him God saves. And they name him Jesus, which is the Greek version of the name Joshua, 
which comes from the word yesha, which means salvation. So Joshua is a form of saviour, a form of deliverer. But he's a foreshadower of Jesus, who is actually the saviour and actually the deliverer. That's why the name was so important for Jesus. That's why it's the only other name by which men can be saved, Paul said. Yesha, salvation. And do you know what the word yesha means? It's from a primitive Hebrew word. That means before there was written Hebrew, there were like, pictographic Hebrew that might be drawn on cave walls and stuff. And in primitive Hebrew, the word yesha, which we translate as salvation or deliverance, do you know what it means? To bring into a wide space. To bring into a wide space. Yesha, to bring into a wide space. And when you see in Exodus, God doesn't use that word, yesha. He says, I came to deliver them and to bring them into a wide space. And then for the rest of the Bible, when God interfaces with a person who he delivers, who he rescues, the Hebrew Bible puts this word on it, yesha, deliverance, salvation. But what is salvation? To deliver into a wide space. For you to have an Exodus experience like what Moses and the people of Israel were called to do. To come out of your confinement, to come out of your slavery, to come out of your big city, you know, prison. And, and, and be called by God, who reveals himself as, I have heard their suffering and I came down to rescue them. Now, if you know that Exodus thing and then you turn to the New Testament, almost everything Jesus says and does, and everything any of the New Testament writers write about what Jesus says and does, all comes back to us in Exodus language. In Galatians chapter 1, we're going to do a series on Galatians next year. In Galatians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says from verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters that are with me to the churches in Galatia. Listen to what he says. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this message. Grace and peace to you. Grace is this word, karis unmerited favor of God, undeserved kindness of God. Uh, you know, something you get from God without ever earning it and without ever being able to, 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 to it's not wages, it's, it's not a transaction. This is a free gift from God. That's what grace is, a free gift. Grace, God's free unmerited kindness in your life. Paul's first message, grace to you. Here's the next one, peace. Now, when I wasn't a Christian, I, I was really into, like, meditation and drugs. And so, for me, peace was like, peace, peace, man. Listening to Bob Marley in the doors and, you know, some of you are too young. You don't even know how cool that was, but it was cool back in the day. Peace, man. But that's not what the Bible, when the Bible says peace, it's not like the hippie serenity, okay? When the Bible uses the word peace, it's always pointing back to the Old Testament word shalom. Shalom, which means a state of fullness, a state of wholeness. A state of flourishing. It's Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that perfect world where life was abounding and flourishing. That's what the word shalom means. That's what the word peace means. And Hebrews thought that was so cool that the way they would greet each other, they would say shalom, shalom, peace, peace be upon you, wishing that flourishing life upon you. That's their way of greeting each other, shalom. There's people in our church and they email me and at the end of it they'll say shalom. And it's so cool because what they're saying is I wish flourishing and peace on your life. So listen to what Paul says. This is my message, he says. It's not from people. It comes directly from God. Divine revelation. Not a philosophy, not a religion, not a good idea thought up by people. Something that God revealed directly to Paul to share with humans. Grace to you. Unmerited favor and kindness of God. That's what God's showing the Israelites 
He came down. He heard they hadn't done anything to deserve it. God just had compassion and mercy and said, I'm coming down to rescue. Everybody say rescue. God's free act of rescue, that's what grace is. Grace and peace, shalom, flourishing, wholeness. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Now, there's not a better phrase that encapsulates what the gospel is than those two words together. Grace to you. And because you have grace, now you can have peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who gave himself for our sins, listen to this, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us, to rescue. This word rescue, it comes from the same meaning as the word exodus, to, to lead you out. Salvation, deliverance, freedom from slavery. Just stand up on your feet. I want to pray for you. I want you just to sit for a moment in God's word. And imagine like that new creation, that, that world under formation, that God has been hovering by his spirit over your life. Your life could be at day four of creation where there's a lot of work that's already been done. Remember the creation story, six consecutive days. God speaks, God works, the spirit moves and stuff happens. You could be at day five. You could be at day six. A lot of progress made. But you know what? You you could be at day one. You could be at day zero where there's nothing. In Genesis chapter one, it says the earth was formless and void. It was just murky, watery chaos, no life, not even light. And the first gospel message ever preached in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the darkness and God said, let there be light, and light was. Even, you you could be well under the way, (laughs) well under formation, or you you could be completely, hopelessly chaotic. And, And whether you're a day one person or a day six person, the invitation is to allow God's Spirit to hover over our lives. Why don't you just sense that right now? God hovering over you. God hovering over this meeting right now. God hovering over your heart and your mind. He introduces himself to us as the God who doesn't say, you do something good for me, then I'll do something good for you. That's my mother-in-law. God says, sorry, Daniel. God says, I am concerned about their suffering. I've heard they're living under slave drivers. They're hemmed in. I've heard their cry. I have compassion on them. So I have come down to rescue them. And it points all the way to Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus, who he came down and he gave himself to rescue us. What, What God was starting in the Exodus with the Israelites, Jesus offers to every man, woman, and child in planet Earth out of compassion. I have come down to rescue them. In John chapter 6, another new Exodus passage. The disciples say, Jesus, you know, when Moses led us out of slavery, he, he, he brought us bread in the wilderness and manna in the wilderness. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven that whoever eats of me. It's Exodus. They, they, they knew, Jesus, you're trying to lead us somewhere. Feed us. And he said, I, I, I'm not going to feed you with food. I'm going to feed you on myself. I am what you need to eat. I am what will change you. I'm your deliverer. I am your salvation. I am come down to rescue you. God says, I I have compassion on them. So lead them out. I'm going to bring them into a spacious 
place. A word that for the rest of history will be summed up in this word salvation, to deliver to a wide place, to deliver to a spacious place. The New Testament says it's only in Jesus' name salvation is found. I want you to close your eyes all over this room and just sit in it for a second. Just sit under God's word. Let his spirit take his word. You know, if you're, whether you're not a Christian, whether you are a Christian, it's actually the same thing how you receive this. You say, Jesus, instead of relying on myself, I'm relying on you. I'm relying on you as the one who rescues me. I'm relying on you as the one who delivers me. Are you feeling pressure? You know, I, I, I had so much compassion in my heart for people that I sat most of the day today, sat with different ones under pressure, hemmed in, beset on every side, stresses. And, I don't know what to do about this, Pastor Ben. And now another pressure upon their life. Oh, and I haven't even been reading the Bible and I forgot to ask God what he thinks. See, more pressure, more pressure, more pressure. And, and then God says, so I have heard your suffering, but I've come down to rescue you and to lead you into a spacious place. So come on, in this place, in in the power of God's spirit, in the presence of his name this evening, why don't you just take a great big deep breath and say, Jesus, I'm positioning myself in that spacious place you have for me instead of the corner I've been backed into, the stresses and the anxiety and the labor and the struggle. Some of us, our wrestle has been, oh, I'm not a good enough Christian. How can I live to please God? And suddenly you feel like a hamster on a wheel trying to do everything you think God wants you to do. And God says, will you stop for a second and let me be the one that comes and just positions you in a land flowing with milk and honey, in a land that's a big, wide open field. Get out of your claustrophobia. Get out of your cramped position and just stretch, spread out your soul. The psalmist used this same word, that God, you have enlarged my heart. God, you have enlarged my territories. I called to you and you delivered me into a wide place. You you, you saved me. You delivered me into a spacious place. So come on, why don't you just right now take a deep breath and let yourself relax for a second. I know you might not be used to being able to do that in church. Because all of The very first thing we've ever learned about God when he spoke and revealed himself in a way that Moses would write down is that God starts it, you don't start anything. That God gives it by grace. You don't earn it or pay for anything. It is a free gift. And the only polite way to receive a gift is to stretch out your hand and say thank you. Isn't it? It's what we teach kids to do at Christmas. When your nana hands you a gift, take it and say thank you. Don't we? So when was the last time you stretched out your hand and just said, Lord, thank you that you're delivering me into a spacious place. Thank you for your salvation. I'm not earning it. I'm not performing. I'm not trying to please you. God is already pleased with you. And his plan is to take you from someone feeling like they've been lashed by a slave driver, cramped into a spacious place. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room tonight. I pray that in every challenge, every point of pressure, the stresses of life, the stresses of being attacked spiritually, the stresses of relational turmoil, Lord, all of us in our homes, in our builds, in our circumstances, in our workplaces, all, all of us have places of pressure, God. And tonight, 
We receive your grace and we receive your peace that gives us the supernatural ability to move beyond our actual pressured circumstances and breathe deeply in our soul that says, no matter what I'm faced with, I am coming into a spacious place. That's what salvation is. I'm being set free. I'm breathing again of the Spirit of God. I'm I'm being delivered into a big land from a small place now. I pray for you, my friend. I pray that God's Spirit would begin to make it real in your heart and mind. I pray like Paul prayed for the Colossians, that God would open the eyes of your heart, that you would know Him and you would know what He's calling you to be. He's not calling you to do. He's calling you to be. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray that tonight we would leave this place with a sense of your goodness and your grace, with a sense that... We're not performing for you. We're responding to you. We're not earning it. We're receiving it. It's a gift. Lord, for some of us, it's just so hard to believe grace. No strings attached. We're we're waiting for the catch. We're waiting for the asterisks and the conditions that apply. We're we're, we're waiting for the the trick. We're waiting for the payment. We're waiting for the transaction. When am I going to get the bill in the mail? And to that, Lord, tonight, we see in our mind's eye, the eye of faith with Jesus on the cross, his last words, it is finished. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus' death, my transaction. Jesus' resurrection, my receipt. The only way you cannot be forgiven by God, the only way you cannot be loved and accepted by God, totally through grace is if you can produce the body of Jesus if you can produce the body of Jesus right now then then what it will show is that the transaction hasn't taken place but the power of his resurrection is his resurrection is the receipt that says proof it's paid in full the life of God the empty tomb that's our receipt we point to it and we say look at our saviour look at what he has done even before I knew him Paul says when we were yet sinners Christ died for us So, Father, I pray for my friends in this room tonight. And they would reflect deeply on the God who said, I have compassion and I have come down to rescue them and deliver them to a spacious place. Lord, help us receive your grace. Help us let go of our works, let go of our stress, let go of our condemnation and our criticism of ourselves, our criticism of each other, our judgment of each other, our attitudes the poison in our own hearts that says surely there must be a price to pay surely there must be something I've got to do surely there must be rules I should follow help us let go of that poison in our hearts that says surely I surely I should just receive his grace come on just stick a hand out to heaven one or two God I receive your grace just in your own words I receive your grace thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you Father I'm going to get the band to lead us in one song. And I just want you to worship as a way that says, my worship is my response. I'm opening my life up to receive the grace of God. And my worship is the way I come into this open, large space with him. Come on, why don't we sing then the band will close the meeting. God bless.